morning we're going to read the Bible now, 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 12, it's on page 1049. That is in the Bibles from up the back if you've got one. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. On that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marvelled at by all those who have believed, because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you, that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfil your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and, and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Good morning, friends. My name is Chris. I'm uh, part of the ministry staff here at OEC. If you keep your Bibles open, we'll be uh, uh, looking and thinking and um, uh, diving into that. Um, but how about I pray before we get started? Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray that you would take these glorious truths that we have just read and implant them in our heart so that we might find courage and strength to stand firm for Jesus. Amen. Uh, During the week, I was watching an interview with a leadership guru called Simon Sinek about courage. Um, He had the opportunity to speak to a captain of the Navy SEALs, and Sinek asked the captain of the Navy SEALs, what gives these people courage to endure the rigorous selection process for the Navy SEALs. And the captain said, it's not what you think. It's not the most athletic or the strongest people who get through. It's not the people with the most privileges or even who seem the most impressive. It's not even those who are garnished with praise and honour from their colleagues. He said, it's when ordinary people see that they are not alone. When they trust those around them and they see that they're part of something bigger. And then Siddiq said this fascinating thing. He said, courage is an external thing. The reason why people have courage to do extraordinary things 
is because they know that someone has their back. This morning, friends, I want to ask the question, where do you find courage to persevere in your faith? Where do you find courage to stand firm for Jesus? In our Bible reading that we just had, uh, Paul says that it comes from somewhere unexpected. Again, just like Seneca was talking about, it's not an internal thing, it's an external thing. Paul says, we need to fix our eyes on the return of Jesus. You see, in this life, we will face trouble and hardship. And following Jesus adds a particular challenge. To say that God's truth is the truth is to stand against all the things that the world teaches. To believe that Jesus is the only way to God is to believe that all the other ways are false. And to seek a godly life is to live opposed to the morals of this world. So when we believe the truth of Jesus and we trust in his salvation and we seek lives that obey and glorify him, we set ourselves on a collision course against the culture and the people of this world. And the Bible says that we will be persecuted when we do this. Now, the dictionary defines persecution as being harassed or annoyed, which I just think that's just a regular kind of evening in my house with my kids. Um, persecution is not unique to Christians, but it's a particular experience. That is, because Jesus promised that it would happen to all people who follow him. In Mark 13, Jesus said, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, and the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have an easy life. No, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, what do you do at work when you are ridiculed for sharing your faith? What do you do with your friends when they mock you for not joining in on their sin? What do you do with your family when you prioritise church or meeting with other Christians over spending time with them? Where do you look for courage to stand firm in your faith when you're persecuted for following Jesus? Um, Paul Grimmond, in his book, Suffering Well, tells of this great warning. He says, The great danger for Christians living in the West is not physical death at the hand of persecutors, but the slow spiritual death of a thousand tiny compromises crouched at the door waiting to devour our hearts. And the saddest predicament of our age is that at the moment we need it most, we have left, let go of a robust theology of belonging to Christ and suffering to him, for him. <clears throat> Friends, in a world filled with compromise, when we seek to find comfort, where will you find courage? Where will you find courage to stand firm in your faith in Jesus when you are persecuted? Well, Paul says that we need to look to the return of Jesus. And what's really interesting is that he says when you do that, 
when your eyes are lifted and you see the return of Jesus and you look at your present-day trials in light of his return, you see three beautiful truths. In verse 5, you see that it's God's evidence. In verse 6, he says it's God's justice. And in verse 11, you even see God's power at work in your life. So that's where we're headed. They're going to be our three points. Where do we find this courage? We look to the return of Jesus. Now, just to set the scene, we're starting a new series in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Um, It was written in 51 AD. You might remember, you know, last year when we did 1 Thessalonians. Remember that? Let me bring you up to speed. Um, Paul, um, in, in his second missionary journey, he rolls into the town of Thessalonica. He preaches the beautiful truths of the gospel, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Many people put their faith in Jesus. But then a riot forms, Paul flees for his life, and these new Christians that have only had faith in Jesus for a couple of weeks are left on their lonesome. So he sends his gospel worker Timothy back to Thessalonica, He gives him a letter and he says, take care of that church there. And then a couple of years later, he's in a city called Corinth and he writes another letter. He writes another letter um, to Thessalonica because the Christians there are doing it tough. You see, there are some false teachers who have come into the church and they're teaching that Jesus has already returned. Can you imagine that? Jesus has already returned and you guys missed it? My goodness. He writes and says, no, he hasn't returned yet. But keep your eyes fixed on his return because if you view your life in light of his return, it will change your perspective on everything. Just like Tim's crazy story about the oranges. I mean, oranges, come on. But When we view our life in light of Jesus' returns, it changes everything. And we're going to be doing that over the next four weeks as we consider standing firm in suffering, standing firm on truth, standing firm until glory, and standing firm as a community. So let's jump into this first point as we look at standing firm for Jesus. When we look at his return, we see evidence. When you think about OEC, what do you give thanks to God for? I mean, when you boast to your friends about our church, and I mean in that kind of Paul God-honouring, non-arrogant kind of boasting, what do you say to your friends about our church? Here you go, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Turn to the person next to you and ask them. Go. Okay, that's 30 seconds. I wonder what you said. Maybe it was the coffee. We have great coffee here. Maybe it was the, um, uh, the people who do the kids' spots. They're fantastic. I'll show you what I, I had. Um, uh, first, 
Uh, I'm so thankful for our youth group leaders. They persevere by prioritizing <clears throat> leading our teenagers on a Friday night over time with family and friends. Uh, second, in our midweek groups, when people share that they are being treated unfairly for being a Christian, either at work or at home or with friends, they remind us that God is still good and that Jesus is worth following. Or third, when we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries, that even when their life is threatened, they say, Jesus is enough. He's all I need. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look at verse 3. Let's see what Paul is thankful for with the Thessalonians. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches and your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. Back in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul had fervently asked God to grow their love for one another and to persevere their faith, to keep them holy and blameless until Jesus returns. And in this second letter, God has miraculously answered their prayer. That even though they're facing hardship and are afflicted on every side, God has grown them in their faith so that they can stand firm for Jesus. But then Paul sheds some unexpected light on their suffering. Have a look at verse 5. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. You see, somehow all of this is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. What is the evidence? Verse 4, it's their afflictions. Their persecution is evidence that God's plan is right and just. Now, I say that God's plan is right and just because in verse 5, I don't believe Paul is speaking about the future judgment to come. Not just yet. You see, in the context of verses 3 and 4, Paul is speaking about their present day experience. Also, Paul is not God, so Paul cannot judge on God's behalf. So rather than speaking about a future judgment, I take it that verse 5 is speaking about God's present day judgments, his decisions, or what we might call his divine plan, God's eternal purposes. Chris, why does all this matter? <laughs> it matters because it gives us a deeper understanding of what it means to suffer for Jesus. That persecution is evidence that God's plan is at work. How? Because God is using their suffering to grow their faith. In Romans chapter 5, Paul goes so far to say that we boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. The Thessalonians have faced persecutions and afflictions and it has produced in them a perseverance and a resilience in their faith. They are a perfect case study of what it means to suffer under God. That when you suffer under God, you cling to God closely. God grows your perseverance 
God uses the suffering in our life to grow us, to change us, to make us more like Jesus. When people object to what we believe, God grows our convictions so we may live our lives on his truth. When we're mocked for obeying Jesus, God grows our character so that we would be more like Jesus. And when when friends or family might ostracize us for what we prioritize, it reminds us that what we prioritize matters, and it matters to put God first. I've got a mate, old mate called Graham, and um, and he um, was at his brother-in-law's house for Christmas lunch one year. And they were doing the thing that you do at Christmas lunch. They were going around the table and sharing about what they did Christmas morning, all the presents they opened and all, all, all the things they did for breakfast. And his sister goes and does um, uh, like an orange and champagne breakfast down on the beach with mangoes. I know that's a weird thing. Um, and he said, oh, it was really great because um, this morning we went to church and I was reminded that at the heart of Christmas is God's love for us in sending Jesus. And his brother-in-law, in front of the whole family, stood up and said, thank you, but if you mention Jesus one more time, I'll ask you to leave. Friends, what do we do in that moment? Paul says we must remind ourselves that God's good plan is at work, that we hold fast to Jesus, that we remind ourselves of our convictions and what it means to uh, live a life that honours him and we stand firm in our faith. It doesn't mean that we um, uh, try to get people back or that we arc up or look for arguments, but rather we look to God and how he is growing us, and we continue to stand firm for Jesus. Because suffering for him is part of his good and right divine plan. You see, we need to stop thinking that life will get better for Christians. We need to stop thinking that society owes us something. We need to keep holding on to the truth of the gospel, because their truth won't save people into eternity. It is only the truth of Jesus. And so <clears throat> I found this passage quite challenging this week because I don't, know if, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I often pray for comfort. I pray that things would be easy. But here, Paul boasts in their perseverance because it has grown them to know and love Jesus more. Okay, so that's the first thing it does. Don't worry, my next two points will be a little bit shorter. Uh, when we look to the return of Jesus, we also see God's justice. Um, have a look at verse 6. Since then it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul does this amazing thing. He takes their eyes from their present day struggles and he points them forward to the return of Jesus and he says, fix your eyes on Jesus' return and view your struggles in light of that. I mean, have you ever wondered what it will be like when Jesus returns? Verse 10 says, it will be a day of glory and people will marvel. There will be eyes like dishpans, jaws on the floor. Uh, it will be any, unlike anything you have ever seen. And however great you imagine it, it will be better than that because you will see Jesus face to face. Uh, Paul says it will be a revelation, that is, Jesus who was mocked for being meek and mild will now be revealed as God's king coming on the clouds of heaven in full glory. And the suffering of God, sorry, of God's people will come to an end in an instant. When suffering, when we suffer, it feels like our faith is being stretched like a rubber band about to break. But Jesus will return and not let that faith snap. He will bring relief to his people. And for those who have afflicted God's people, they will be called to account and face the judgment of God. And this shows us that God is a just God. See, one of the hardest teachings of the Bible is the doctrine of God's final judgment. And people will say it's unjust, or it's unfair, or it's unloving. But the opposite is true. In the face of evil in this world, suffering and affliction, the judgment of God shows us his justice and his love. You see, sin cannot triumph in this universe. God must punish evil. Um, uh, there, and there must be consequences when people do evil and people must be held to account. And so God holding people to account for their actions teaches us that God has a deep compassion for humanity and a deep love for those who suffer. It demonstrates his concern and his justice because sin cannot go unpunished. Now, if you're here visiting with us today and investigating if Jesus is someone worth trusting, can I say it's great that you're here. And if you have any questions about what I'm talking about, I'd love to buy you one of our great coffees over the breakout space and chat more about this. But friends, consider this. If you've ever admired the magnificent diamond or a gemstone in a museum or in a photo, you'll know that you can only see its brilliance against a black backdrop. And you'll never see the beauty of Jesus. You'll never see the justice and love of God until you see it against the black backdrop of judgment. Now that we've seen that black cloth of judgment, let's have a look at the diamond. Have a look at verse 10. On that day when he comes, that's Jesus, he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. He called you this through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the day, that is the day of the Lord, is coming when Jesus returns in judgment. But people won't be judged for how many times they went to church or how many times they volunteered at the kids' soccer game. The thing that will determine how people are judged is how we have responded to his message. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it was the perfect, sinless Son of God dying in our place. 
And when he died, he experienced the judgment of God and the wrath of God on our behalf. So when we ask God to forgive us of our sins, God can freely forgive us of our sins because the punishment has already been taken. Which means for those who trust in Jesus, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, happened at the cross. This means the judgment has already been taken. And so for those who hold fast to Jesus... They will receive his glory. Jen Wilkin, a Christian author, she puts it like this. Sharing in God's glory primarily involves becoming more like Jesus in his new creation. In the new creation, we receive a glorious body, one without sickness or decay. In the new creation, we'll be in the presence of God for all eternity and will no longer be subjected to earthly rulers and their afflictions. We will rule the new creation perfectly under the rule of Christ and receive everything that has been promised to us in Jesus. Which means our present day sufferings cannot compare to the glory that is to come. And that's Paul's second point. That is, in, if you view your suffering, if we look at the return of Jesus and view our life in light of his return, we see that this life is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. Suffering for Jesus is worth it because we know of the glory that will um, be ours. So what do we do with all this? Um, You know, there's a danger here. As we talk about standing firm for Jesus and, and looking, trusting in his justice and, and looking forward to the glory, there's a danger that we would think that it all relies on us, that this would produce some sort of white-knuckle alpha male Christianity that we need to do it on ourselves by ourselves. But if we take that approach to standing firm for Jesus, we will fail. And so Paul finishes with what we should do. Have a look at verse 11. In view of this, we pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. So the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. In verse 11, Paul says, in view of this, that is in view of the return of Jesus and the future glory and the courage and the desire they have to serve Jesus, he prays that God would make them worthy, not deserving, that is, a life that is worthy of the gospel, a life that is fit for the gospel. And then he prays that God would fulfill their desire to do good. He prays that God would give them strength to live a life that is consistent with their faith, that their attitudes and their actions, their character and their courage would reflect Jesus and that God would do this miraculous work in their life. Like a hand-knitted jumper made with a single strand of wool, Paul prays that their whole life would be knitted together by the grace of God and that they would stand firm in Jesus. But Paul presses on us that it is God who will do this work. Did you notice that? God is the subject of these prayers. Paul doesn't pray for them to do it. It's not wishful thinking. He's not sending positive vibes into the universe. Paul prays to the sovereign God who has the power to create the whole universe that it would be at work 
in their lives to so they may stand firm for Jesus so that God may be glorified. You see, the Christian life is hard and it's impossible to do it without God. You need more than resolve to do that. You need God's help. We need to be utterly dependent on God, his power and his grace. As we already saw in verse 3 and 5, it is God has grown them so they may stand firm in Jesus and wait for him to return. And if we want to stand firm for Jesus, if we want to persevere in our faith, we need to trust in him and his power. We need to pray that God would be at work in us. Just to finish, you know, I used to go to church with a woman called Sarah, not her real name. Sarah was born in Taiwan and she moved to study, uh, moved to Sydney to study medicine. At uni, she became a Christian. And so one uni break, she moved back home and she was so excited to tell her family the good news of following Jesus, but they were not impressed. They threw her Bible in the bin. They told her if she doesn't give up Christianity, she wouldn't be allowed to return to Sydney to finish her degree and they would cut her off from her family. Friends, with a well-paying career and the acceptance of her family on the line, how would you encourage Sarah to keep following Jesus? Paul has said today that it is a reminder, that it is evidence that God is at work. To fix our, her eyes on the glory to come and to pray for power from God to stand firm. Uh, and in this beautiful way, Sarah has continued to follow Jesus. She finished her degree. She now works in Australia and continues to stand firm for Jesus, trusting in his power and his grace. Friends, where will you look to courage to stand firm for Jesus in a world that persecutes us? Let me pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you um, that while uh, we live uh, in difficult times and in a world that stands against uh, Jesus, Lord, that you give us, um, that you grow us by your spirit, that you give us the hope of glory and that you work in us with power to stand firm. And so, Lord, help us not to rely on ourselves but to look to you and the grace that you give us to stand firm for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.